Well, we are in Mark chapter 9, and I'd like to ask you to turn there. We're going to continue. Um, last week, we, we talked about the transfiguration of Jesus, and we're going to continue that this morning. But before we do, I'd like to ask you a question, and that is this. Have you ever been desperate? And, and if you have, what does desperation look like on you? <laughs> uh, it's, it's different for everybody. Many of you know or, or would be familiar with the name Jim Lovell. He was a NASA astronaut and a naval aviator and captain and was the command module pilot for Apollo 8, which is, uh, is a, an expedition to circumnavigate the moon. And it was an unmitigated success. And as a result, he was given the Congressional Space Medal of Honor and the Presidential Medal of, uh, of Freedom. And incredible work. Um, however, it's interesting that Jim Lovell is known most with, because of his association with a colossal failure. Many of you remember Apollo 13. And, and in fact, there was a movie made about that expedition uh, a number of years ago starring Tom Hanks. And, and uh, in that movie, we, there is a scene where uh, Jim Lovell is approached by a television reporter who asked this question of him. Is there a specific instance in an airplane emergency when you can recall fear. His thought was, this is the most fearless man on the planet, right? This is how Jim Lovell replied. He says, well, I'll, I'll tell you. I, I remember one time, I'm, I'm in a banshee at night in combat conditions. So there's no running lights on the carrier. It was the Shangri-La, and we were in the Sea of Japan, and my radar had jammed. And my homing signal was gone because somebody in Japan was using the same frequency. And so it was. I was it was leading me away from where I was supposed to be. And I'm looking down at a big black ocean. So I flip on my map light and then suddenly zap. Everything shorts out right then and there in my cockpit. All my instruments are gone. All my lights are gone. And I can't even tell what my altitude is. I know I'm running out of fuel. And I'm thinking about ditching in the ocean. That sounds like desperation to me. Often we hail people who emerge alive and triumphant from desperate situations in the face of fear as heroes and we esteem them in their bravery. However, desperation in those moments, in those situations, gets recorded in their mind as a lack of bravery, a lack of capability, a lack of faith. But it's quite honestly in that moment, in that moment of desperation that sets us on a course of searching for the answer to our dilemma. And it leads us to the very core of our need at that moment. 
You see, acknowledging that need is a place where desperation has the opportunity to turn into deliverance. Desperation is the scene that we see that Jesus arrives to after coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. Would you look with me at Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. And when they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. And immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. And I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. And Jesus answered them and said, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion. And falling to the ground, he began rolling about and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, that is Jesus, asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father cried out and began saying, I do believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit saying, you deaf and dumb spirit, I command you to come out of him and do not enter him again. And after crying out and throwing him into a terrible convulsion, it came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. And when he had come into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. How does Jesus take this father from desperation to deliverance. Let's look at verse 14 and 15. They, they're coming down the mountain. They see a large crowd, and the crowd rushes up to Jesus in amazement. Mark is the only gospel writer who notes that the scribes, the religious leaders, are arguing with the disciples. This, this account is found also in Matthew and Luke. But Mark is the only one who records this particular piece. The scribes seized on the disciples' failure to, to effectively meet the need of the desperate father and his son and took the opportunity to, 
to heap discredit upon them and perhaps even insult and ridicule. I have to ask you, have you ever been ridiculed for doing something good? Have you ever uh, experienced experienced insult uh, or discredit when you honestly stepped out in faith to engage in some ministry and there were those alongside saying, ah, you can't do it. I think sometimes and perhaps many times that judgment and the resulting discouragement comes from other religious people, believers who may be well-meaning at first, but end up simply being mean. Let me ask you, honestly, how many of you in this room have been hurt by, wounded by the church or by other believers? Quite a few of us. Quite a few of us. You know, attack from within is a common source of casualties within the church, quite honestly. And sadly, the church has a history of shooting its wounded. Note here that the disciples were previously sent out by Jesus, sent out with the authority over unclean spirits, and returned with the testimony of God's great work both in them and through them. In Mark chapter 6, we read of how this happened. Jesus summoned the 12 and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. They went out and preached that men should repent, and they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. What's happening here, however? Here the disciples were ineffective in meeting this very important need. And the doubters and the critics in the crowd were quick to pounce on their inability. I think it's important to understand that ministry is a work of faith. It's a work of faith that is laced with nuance and variables that, quite honestly, often challenge the boxes that we build to define God and how he works. The limits of that conception easily become the definition of our spiritual comfort zones. And we develop intolerance for anything that dares to step beyond those limits outside of our comfort zone. We, too easily we draw lines that bring um, convenient, convenient and artificial limits to what we believe God can do and how he works. The hallmark, the hallmark of those lines that very honestly too often divide us, the hallmark of those lines is a rigid understanding of the words that we end up parsing to insulate ourselves from anything that would challenge our personal status quo. Too easily we descend into name-calling and demeaning declarations that miss the opportunity to bless each other with, with honest exhortation and respectful reflection. 
the, uh, a famous evangelical pastor named Oswald Chambers writes, beware of making a fetish of consistency to your convictions instead of being devoted to God. Let me read that again. Beware of making a fetish of consistency to your convictions instead of being devoted to God. The one consistency of the saint is not to a principle, but to the divine life. It is the divine life which continually makes more and more discoveries about the divine mind. It is easier to be a fanatic than a faithful soul because there is something amazingly humbling, particularly to our religious conceit, in being loyal to God. Earlier during our worship, Pat read a passage from 2 Peter that spoke about being partakers of the divine nature. Last week, we talked about that. That's, that's the core of what God desires in us, not our, not our commitment to, to one conviction or another. It's about being devoted to God. And here at the moment of the disciples' failure, we see the scribes, self-appointed critics at the front of the crowd, questioning once again the theological qualifications of the disciples and their rabbi, that is Jesus. Let's be careful. Let's be careful not to put ourselves in the place of the scribes, looking for opportunity to judge others' efforts, to step out and attempt to be used by God, even if they're not squarely on the mark. Let's be careful about that. Instead, let's give room for the grace of God to do the course correcting. You know, I, I've heard many times that this church has this reputation of being a very friendly church. Indeed, the truth is that many of you cannot get into the sanctuary from the front door without shaking about four or five or six hands, right? But I would love it. I would love it if we would not be known simply as a friendly place, but as a place where the grace of God is manifest, where we give and receive grace, not only from God, but from each other. That's an important characteristic that I believe that the Lord desires to enfold into us and allow to be expanded from us. Our call is to serve one another, instructing and discipling, exhorting and encouraging one another in grace. Exactly as we will see that Jesus does. Look at verse 15. Immediately when the crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. Mark is the only gospel writer who notes that the crowd ran to greet Jesus and were, quote-unquote, amazed. The word simply means to be utterly astonished, even to be terrified, astounded. And why were they amazed? What were, what were they amazed about? 
maybe it's the fact that Jesus had just come off the Mount of Transfiguration and was he still glowing? I don't know. But it's interesting that Mark uses the very same word to describe Jesus' agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. There, the very same word is translated very distressed. In Mark 14, we read they came to a place named Gethsemane. And he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And that's our word. Perhaps the crowd's amazement was not at Jesus' appearance, but distress over the fact that the disciples were unable to meet the need of the man and his son. Perhaps that distress was amplified or, or stirred up by the doubting debaters accusing and ridiculing the disciples. Verse 16, and Jesus asked them, what are you discussing with them? Here again, Mark is the only gospel writer who notes that Jesus asked this question. And I don't know, I don't know why, but perhaps it's because Peter was close enough to hear that question. After all, Peter is, has been on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's traveling with Jesus. And it's Peter who is likely dictating the book of Mark. It is Peter who is, is sharing these experience with Mark, the writer. Was Jesus investigating the topic? Was he trying to find out more information here? Or was he rescuing the disciples? The word discussing means to dispute with. The first question of Jesus does not show that he's ignorant of what's going on. No, rather, I believe it, it is designed to draw the attention of the crowd away from the disciples and direct it to Jesus himself. It corresponds to a spiritual principle. Those in need must confess their own inadequacy. Then they must be brought to Jesus to meet that need. See, to concentrate on Jesus' servants is misplaced attention. Jesus needs to be the focus. John the Baptist declared when, when his, his own disciples uh, asked him about Jesus. In John chapter 3, we read, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to, to whom you've uh, testified, behold, he's baptizing and all are coming to him. They're all going to him. They had been coming to us. We're losing our ministry. What's going on here? And John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase and I must decrease. Note that the, the mission and vision of Jesus 
is to draw all humanity to himself. And our mission is to do the same, to draw all humanity to Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 11, all things have been handed over to me by your father, by my father. And no one knows the son except the father, nor does anyone know the father except the son and anyone to whom the son wills to reveal him. Notice he starts with this statement of authority. All things have been handed over to me by my father. Then he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's the vision and mission of Jesus, to draw humanity to himself. And I believe it should be the vision and the mission of the church as well. To come to Jesus, to learn of him, and to take up his purposes, pursue his purpose. Jesus, Jesus is the focus here. One of the crowd answered him in verse 17, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which, which makes him mute. Note the father, the father indicates his his personal distress, and it's amplified in the crowd. Verse 18, and whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. Sounds like a grand mal seizure, doesn't it? Yeah. I told your disciples, I told them to cast it out, and they could not do it. You think that's what they said, I told him so. Now, the, the, the Greek here word for told is to simply lay forth. In other words, I presented, to the, I presented the problem to them. I laid it out before them. Luke says that the, the father says, I begged your disciples to cast it out. And they could not. Each gospel each gospel records these words, and they could not. They could not. The clear expectation of the Father and of the crowd is that they could. After all, Jesus had already sent them out previously, right? He had sent them out previously and given them authority over spirits. But here, here they were dismayed and disappointed because they could not. And perhaps that's precisely the reason. The reason the disciples were not able to cast the demon out because the focus was on them, not on Jesus. Too easily, we take our eyes off Jesus. And, and especially, let me say, especially when we've been used by him before. We too easily slip into the place of pride and regard ourselves to be the deliverer. And the vessel, the vessel <laughs> assumes the credit for its content. 
And let me tell you, the crowd, the crowd is all too ready to affirm the vessel, the person that God is using. And, and quite honestly, that makes the discipline of keeping our focus on Jesus that much more difficult. It's, it happens all the time. We, we elevate the vessel instead of the Lord at work through them, through the vessel. This is one of the reasons for regular worship, for worshiping regularly. God-honoring worship sets our collective gaze upon Jesus and takes it away from the human vessel. The purpose of worship is to honor God. The discipline of worship is setting our collective gaze on Jesus. And the effect of honest, God-honoring worship is a proper focus on Christ. Verse 19, and he answered and said to them, O believing un uh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? <laughs> Matthew and Luke add the word perverted to Jesus' description of, of, of this generation. He says, you unbelieving and perverted generation. Where did that come from? That sounds a little over the top, doesn't it? Well, Jesus is, is reflecting quite honestly the Lord's uh, or God's sentiment found in Psalm 95, beginning in verse 8, where he says, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the days of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen my work. Though they had seen my work, they tested me. For 40 years, I loathed that generation. That's the Lord's words in relation to his patient but difficult endurance of the face, faithlessness and, dare I say, the entitlement of the Israelite generation that said no to the promised land. They said, no, we're not going in. There's too many big giants in that land. And instead, they ended up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. 40 years. And the judgment of the Lord rested upon them because none of them were able to enter into the promised land, those who doubted. These people surrounding Jesus and this man and his son at this point had they had heard of, at minimum, and many of them likely had seen the miracles that Jesus had performed. And yet they ridiculed his disciples, and by extension, Jesus himself. It's interesting to me that Psalm 95 is a call to worship. The beginning of that, of that psalm 
is a call to worship. There the psalmist writes, Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. It's a call to worship. Verse 6 says, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Again, the purpose of worship is to honor God. The discipline of worship is to set our collective gaze on the Lord, and the effect of honest, God-honoring worship is a right focus in our lives. But in verse 8, in verse 8 of Psalm 95, the Lord's voice is heard saying, Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the days of Massa in the wilderness when your fathers tested me. Quote, when your fathers tested me. Don't harden your hearts like that. Like when that happened. You know that another effect of worship is that it softens and cultivates our hearts. That's part of what happens when we worship together. So that we will hear the voice of the Lord. And that's why we, we worship before we dig into the scriptures together. We worship so that as a result of our worship, our hearts will be soft, cultivated, ready to receive the word of the Lord. We want to hear his voice. And so our hearts need to be ready. They need to be soft. They need to be cultivated so that they can receive the word. Verse 19, Jesus says, bring him to me. And that is the answer, right? Bring him to Jesus. And they brought the boy to him, verse 20. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion. And falling on the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. It, it was the impotent rage of a defeated enemy an unwilling acknowledgement of the power and the authority of Jesus. It's curious to me that verse 21 is even in here. Here is this boy rolling around, convulsing in this seizure. And Jesus steps aside and, and asks the father, how long has he been doing this? What? Are you kidding me? What's he doing? Trying to gather case history or something? I, no, no. Instead of, of what gathering case history, what he is doing is he's helping the father to confess how desperate his need is. How long has he been doing this? I'm a child. He's helping the father confess his need and at the same time showing that there is no other resource but Jesus. In verse 22, he says, it's often thrown him in the fire and into the water to destroy him. But, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. As the father is telling his story, Jesus' question reveals the salient 
issue at work in the Father's heart. And quite honestly, the failure of the disciples' effort. He never questions Jesus' compassion. He knows that he cares for him. But what he questions, perhaps I think we could even say what he doubts, is whether Jesus is able to do this. Does he have the power? Does he have the ability to to cast the demon out? And Jesus, Jesus' response is a bit, I think maybe you could even say incredulous. If you can, do you know who you're talking to here? This is Jesus who just came off the Mount of Transfiguration where his deity was unveiled. Do you know who you're talking to? If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. There's a spiritual principle at work here. All things are possible with or for God because he is sovereign. He can do anything he wants, right? But not all things are purposed by God. Not everything is God's will. Mark 10, in response to Jesus' statement about how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, the disciples respond. Even more astonished, they said to him, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, with People, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. All things. This is speaking of salvation. It's impossible for people to earn or acquire salvation. It's God's gift, and it's purpose for everyone. Salvation is God's great gift of grace. But in Mark 14, here we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he is in agony. And he's saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. You see, this is speaking of God's will. All things are possible. He is sovereign. He acknowledges the sovereignty of God, but then he also acknowledges that God's will, God's purpose is his decision. It's his decision, not ours. And sometimes his decision, his will, his purpose is beyond our understanding. Belief or faith is simple confidence, first and foremost, in God's ability, his sovereign ability. And secondly, it is trusting his wisdom, his will. Do you hear the fact that there are two integral pieces to honest faith? God, first and foremost, is able to do anything. We, We believe that. But part and parcel of that faith is trusting that God's will is his business. He can do whatever he wants. It's not ours to command him. The focus is on God. 
not on what he delivers to us. Let me say that again. The focus is on God, not on what he gives us. A.W. Tozer, theologian of the ages, says, faith in faith has displaced faith in God in too many places. Hmm. Verse 24, immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. And this desperate cry acknowledging the limit of his own faith, his insufficiency can only turn to God and his sufficiency. Jesus answers, notice this, Jesus answers not according to the poverty of the man's faith, but according to the riches of his grace. Faith that, God's reward, that God rewards is a curious mixture of confidence in God's ability and grace and the conviction of our utter lack of capability. Have you ever felt like you just don't have enough faith? You ever felt that way? Some of us have heard from very well-meaning people, you just need to believe. You need to, you need to have more faith. How much faith do we need? Faith isn't just about getting what you want. Faith is trusting God to give you what he desires. How much is enough faith? Jesus says if you have an, the faith of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, hey, be moved from here to there. What? The faith of a mustard seed? That's a tiny little bit of faith. The focus, again, is not on the effect, but on God's deliverance of his will. Verse 25, when Jesus saw the crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the clean, unclean spirit, saying, you deaf and dumb or deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And after crying out loud, and throwing him to the ground in terrible convulsions, it came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up, and he got up. Jesus, note that Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit. Jesus can do that. He's God, right? Jesus can do that. It's his power. It's his authority to which the demon absolutely must respond. Note that Luke records that not long after this, this experience, Jesus sent out 70 of his disciples, of his followers for ministry. And in Luke 10, we read that the Lord appointed them 70 others and sent them in pairs to every city to which he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest. What is that? It's asking the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into it. 
No, first of all, Jesus appointed them. And secondly, Jesus instructed them to pray. Jesus gives his authority very specifically to these 70. Not to every curious follower. Not to every curious follower in the crowd. It was 70 that he delivered this authority to. And later in Luke 10, we read that they came back. And they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall like, a, like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the powers of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Jesus is pretty clear. He's saying, don't get drawn away in rejoicing that the spirits are subject to you. Don't get into that. Rejoice that your salvation is certain. You understand that Jesus, Jesus knows our propensity to be enamored with authority and power. And what is authority? What is that? It's nothing but delegated influence. It's delegated. Authority is given to the 70. It's delegated to them. And it's note that it's authority over the power of the enemy. It's not power over the power of the enemy. There's a difference. Unfortunately, some Christians get mixed up about the authority of the believer because they take these verses out of context. Some people claim authority over demons and sickness based on this verse, but they conveniently overlook the fact that Jesus was speaking to a particular group of people at a particular time in ministry. Some take great liberty and attempt to assume the power of God for themselves, to command spirits of all sorts. I know some of you have heard people say, I command you, spirit of depression. I command you, spirit of this, spirit of that. You've heard, heard people say that, right? In the context of prayer, sometimes they even speak to inanimate objects or part, body parts. I command you, I command you, broken arm to be healed in the name of Jesus. I command you. Wait a second. Wait a second. They don't have the authority to do that. Some look at this passage and they assemble a formula because Jesus, Jesus did a very specific thing with casting this demon out. And they assemble this, this formula. They, they, they believe that they will declare in the name of Jesus and it will happen. Others errantly claim to possess apostolic gifts and therefore profess to have the same authority as Peter and Paul. Some people claim authority for the believer is, is based in the Old Testament promises to Joshua and Gideon and, and Israel. But in every situation, they, they 
tend to take those scriptures out of context, out of the context in which they were meant to be. The doctrine of the authority of the believer is used in some circles to claim divine power, to perform miracles, to get rich, to stay healthy, to bind Satan, to speak new reality into being. But all of this is a perversion of the biblical teaching of the authority of the believer. What is the authority of the believer? The only authority a believer possesses is the authority that is given by Jesus to go into all the world, the authority to make disciples, the authority to baptize in the name of the triune God, the authority to teach Jesus' commands, the authority to approach God's throne of grace with confidence, as as in Hebrews chapter 4, and the right to be called the children of God, as in John chapter 1. Again, the theologian A.W. Tozier says, faith is not a key to get what you want. Faith is not some magical formula that no matter who uses it, God has to act upon it. Such is religious lunacy and borders on witchcraft. Wow. He says, I firmly believe that true faith rises in the soul of a man or woman who will fall on his face before an open Bible and allow God to be God in his life. And though they may be well-meaning, They err in their understanding of the scripture because power belongs to God and God alone. Authority belongs to God and it's only his to delegate. Most importantly, we have to understand that the believer is under authority. It's a common misconception within segments of the broad family of believers. Some presume to personally possess authority in the name of Jesus. And such presumption can be intoxicating, let me tell you. It can be intoxicating. And it can lead, honestly, to manipulation and spiritual abuse, leading others to misplace their faith in human vessels or signs and wonders. Listen, even the enemy can do signs and wonders. And he's a deceiver. He's an imitator. Now, the authority in the name of Jesus is his authority, not ours. And I don't say these I I don't say this of of our well-meaning brothers and sisters, that they are malicious or manipulating. They They simply lack knowledge. As Jesus points out, verse 28, when he came into the house, the disciples began questioning, why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, this kind can only come out by anything but prayer, cannot come out by anything but prayer. Some manuscripts um, include the words and fasting, but most scholars 
most scholars agree that that is a later addition. So, again, the, the disciples ask, why could we not cast the demon out? And that's exactly where they missed it. They don't have the power in and of themselves to do anything. The power belongs and is wielded by God. The same is true of us. Keeping this straight, honestly, keeping this straight is the key to remaining effective in the work of God, in the ministry that he calls us to. So you may ask, okay, so who in this situation, if this, if this uh, scenario is true, that this can only come out by prayer, who in this situation prayed? Well, look at verse 24. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. What's he saying? He's praying to God Almighty right there. Again, this is Jesus who just came from the Mount of Transfiguration where his divinity was revealed, uncovered. He is God. And he heard that desperate prayer of the Father, acknowledging the conviction of his utter lack of personal capability and the confidence that he had in God's grace and ability. And his son was delivered. So what's our takeaway? What's our takeaway in this whole deal? I have a list <laughs> I could share with you later if you want, but it all is summed up in this, that Jesus is our focus. Jesus needs to remain our focus. He is first. He is preeminent in all things. By the way, the rest of the story the end of Jim Lovell's interview went like this. All my instruments were gone. My lights are gone. I can't even tell now what my altitude is. I know I'm running out of fuel, so I'm thinking about ditching in the ocean. And I look down, and, and there and then in the darkness, there's this, there's this green trail like a long carpet that's laid out beneath me. It was the algae. It, you know, that phosphorescent stuff that gets churned up in the wake of a big ship. <laughs> and there it was. it was. It was leading me home. You know, if my cockpit lights hadn't shorted out, there's no way I'd ever been able to see that. So you never know what events are going to transpire to get you home. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus is the pathway marked out on the ocean. But he is the way. He is the truth that leads to life. He is both the direction and the destination. He is our Savior and our salvation. And when the lights go out, when resources are running out, when you can't see a way out, 
when your distress and your faith is not enough, in the darkness, in the darkness, his presence and his power will light the way. And we'll be able to go from desperation all the way to deliverance. Again, the takeaway this morning is keep Jesus in focus. And he will get you home. Would you stand with me? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your grace that enables us first and foremost to even come to you. But it's also your grace, Lord, that enables us to fine-tune our understanding and our focus on you. We thank you, Lord, that, that it is your good pleasure to reveal yourself to us. It is your good pleasure to bring your authority and power and make it available to work in our lives and in the lives of others. But Lord, we, we humbly acknowledge that it's your authority. It's your power, not ours. And I pray that this week you would, you would help us, help us keep you in focus. When so much is going to begin to happen here, maybe it already is, so much bustling about, so much stuff that will seek to draw our attention away from you. Lord, would you remind us of these words this morning? Come unto me. That's where we want to be, Lord. We want to be at your feet. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we ask this. Amen.